Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. I love sci-fi with like a creepy vibe to it. All right, like, I'm not talking about outright horror. That's, that's Pastor Brandon's deal, okay? Um, but I, I like this stuff that, this sort of tweaks that natural fear of the unknown, right? It's not about the thing on the screen. It's the thing that's like right off the screen, right? You're not sure what's going to happen. Maybe for you, the, uh, the spiritual world kind of feels like that. You maybe haven't really, maybe you don't like to consider the idea of spirits, of demons and angels, things of that nature. I mean, just think about it. Demons, angels, and Satan, and God himself even are, are, are spirits. They don't have a physical form. They're invisible to us, and yet they are just as real as you and I. We don't like to think about things like that because we can't experiment with them. We can't perceive them with our senses. That, that Enlightenment-era mindset that comes with, I can only believe in the things I can, I can touch and I can observe, makes us fear that which is unknown, that which we can't test. The idea that we could be surrounded by entities right now that we can't perceive is, is, a, is probably a little bit of a worrisome thing for some of us. It's a little uncomfortable. But we have to engage this truth because the reality of beings that are spirit only and have no physical form are assumed by scripture. In my community group this past week uh, on Thursday, we were reminded that God is a spirit. In heaven, the saints who have gone before us await the resurrection of their bodies as spirits. And likewise, angels and demons are spirits, which yes, can manifest themselves in physical form, but are not by nature physical beings like we are. The passage we're about to read today assumes the reality of these beings, particularly demons. And that means we need to start today with a bit of demonology. I know that sounds kind of strange. You don't hear a whole lot of pastors talking about demonology unless they're way off the deep end. I promise I'm not going there, all right? But we need to study our enemy. We need to understand what demons are before we can engage this passage for real. And so I would urge you today to, to be careful on one hand in not discounting the power of demons and Satan in this world. And on the other hand, I don't want you to be so afraid that, uh, that, that, you're, that you're going around thinking that there's a demon around every corner. All right, we have to walk the line here. Because, that, and that second point is really overcome by the reality of Christ's power, which is the, the point of the passage we're about to read today. So before we do that, though, here's the groundwork. Uh, just in case you're not familiar with the idea, demons are fallen angels who followed Satan when he was cast out of heaven. They seem to have been particularly active during Jesus's earthly ministry. These demons serve Satan and, and work toward his goals. They tempt, they influence, and oppress in an effort to take as many people with them to hell as they possibly can. That said, while demons are real, they are not the cause of every sin. They have real influence over people, but not every evil or sick person is demon-possessed. 
all right? And the passage before us today is a man who is particularly spiritually afflicted. In fact, he's probably the most demon-possessed person in all of Scripture. Despite that, today's sermon isn't about demons. Yes, it's the groundwork, but it's about the one who cast them out. See, this passage shows us that Jesus Christ is not only God of the storm, as we saw last week, but he is also God over every spiritual being, angel and demon alike. It shows us, this passage shows us the awesome authority and transforming power of God. And it showcases the holy fear and obedience that we should have for him. So if you'd like, you can flip over to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Or Most of you probably aren't flipping. You're probably tapping, right? So go ahead and tap over to Mark 5, 1 through 20. Why don't you guys stand with me as we read this while you're doing that? I'll give you a second. Again, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 says this, And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described, or seen it, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and they came, began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would help us to see the depravity of sin and the the pull of Satan. I pray that you would help us to see your power and authority over even evil. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to have a healthy and reverent fear of your power, your authority, and that, Lord God, we would be sent from here, Lord, in that reverence and in your grace to our friends and families to do 
or that which is ordinary for an extraordinary Savior. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. As a, as a kid, a friend of mine um, decided he wanted to become a special effects artist. In fact, I, 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 we've lost track of each other over the years, but I checked his Facebook profile, and he's still in the film industry. So like at like 13, 14, this guy knew precisely what he was going to do with the rest of his life. I wasn't that self-aware, but, uh, but he was. He was like, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, he, he was certain that that was the career for him. So he, he pursued it even at that young age. And uh, if you're looking to get into special effects, and I'm talking about, like, not CG. I'm talking about, like, old-school special effects, right? Latex and things like that, like prosthetics and all the craziness. If you're looking to get into that kind of stuff as a kid, there is only one thing to do. Make a budget-level zombie movie. That's what you do, right? And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't there for the filming. But uh, I got to see some stills from the final cut, and it was downright disturbing. The level of violence that you can portray in pictures with some latex, caro corn syrup, and red food coloring. That's it. That's all the guy used, all right? Brandon knows all about this stuff. The morning after the filming, actually, his, his cul-de-sac where they shot the thing was stained red over the whole thing. Like, that's how crazy this thing got, all right? It was nuts. For me, like, the, the violence that happens in movies has always been sort of informed by my understanding that special effects are used. No one's really hurt. And, and so I have a pretty high tolerance for violence in movies and things of that nature. But when I consider the passage before us, I can't help but feel a little squeamish. Like, this isn't a story, it's a real man possessed by a legion of demons, and he's in bad shape. I mean, not just physically, but spiritually as well. He was possessed by demons in this uniquely terrible way. Like, while other people in the scriptures had some control over their faculties, even though they were possessed by unclean spirits, this guy had no control over himself. He was out of control. And he was almost something other than human, both inside and out. Like, you read it here. It says in uh, verses 1 through 5, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When you think about people who can break chains and shackles with their bare hands and resist every attempt for someone to, to just try to control them, this guy probably isn't the guy you picture, right? You're thinking somebody from Krypton, probably. But this guy is in bad shape. Like, he lived among the tombs. Let's start there. He lived among the tombs. What does that mean? I don't think it means that he put his house near the tombs. I think this guy made a, a habit of breaking into the tombs and sleeping among the dead. He was met constantly 
with various states of decay. He would have looked and smelled awful. And he didn't just smell and look bad because he lived in the tombs, though. He was also covered in scars and wounds that he'd made cutting himself with rocks. I mean, I imagine these wounds wouldn't have been washed or dressed either. Right? We're talking about first century, and this guy's out of his mind. Nobody could subdue him to even help him. Like, these wounds would have been infected, and he was probably spreading death wherever he went. And I, I can't imagine that this was a desirable experience for this man. Right? You might think, oh, well, he committed himself to demons. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. He was tormented. He had no friends except the dead bodies in the tombs. And he was confronted with the idea of death and dying constantly. He was in constant pain. I mean, I don't know what he was constantly screaming, but it may have been that he was screaming in pain, not knowing what to do with himself other just to let it out. I mean, it could be even that, like, when he cut himself with the stones, that it was, it was more for relief from the other things than for simple self-harm. I mean, he was likely constantly exhausted, just bearing the weight of this oppression, unable to rest, and likely inconsolable in any way. I mean, people tried to stop him, and I imagine that this would have not only been for the good of the town, but for their own good, or for his own good. Just to, to go, hey, like, we're going we're gonna, to, yeah, we're going to use chains, but we're going to strap you down so that we can even help you. But the demons drove him to break free. So you might think of super strength as a means of freedom, but it was a means of bondage for him. What an awful sight. I mean, I can't imagine what this guy looked like. I mean, just a real man, like somebody who could stand in front of you right now tortured like this, man. But it's a familiar portrait, the thought of this man oppressed by Satan, following the commands of demons, harming himself, because this man displays outwardly our natural state without Christ. He is what we are on the inside without Jesus. Ephesians 2 says we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are sons of disobedience and we are followers of Satan. While not every person is possessed by demons, I'm not saying that. Every person, however, does do the will of Satan unless Christ saves him. While not every person cuts their flesh with stones, every one of us chases after sins that lead us to destruction. Think about that. What an awful state we would be in without Christ. I mean, if you've ever felt indifferent about your salvation, man, think about the man in the passage before us today. Tortured by sights of death, bleeding, screaming in pain, being led by Satan. I, I mean, think about it. I mean, if you've ever neglected to thank God for your salvation, just look at this. Because the idea here, like, 
who would want such a wretched person? Who, who, would, who would die for such a wretched person? Who would welcome someone like that into his kingdom, let alone his family? I mean, again, if you've ever felt complacent about your salvation, think about it. Consider how amazing it is that God called you not only out of darkness, but that he wanted you at all. But he does. But he does. 1 John 4.10 tells us that love is that God loved us first. God loved you so much. Even while you were dead in your sins, following after Satan and cursing God with everything in your being, he loved you so much that he came after you. And not only that, he sent his only son to die for your sins. Like this man before us in the passage today, unless God intervenes, we are all hopeless. But God does intervene. And that's the wonderful news of this passage. The Next few verses here, 16 through 13, or 6 through 13, say this. And when Jesus saw, or he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Let's actually stop there for a moment. This guy was hopeless, right? He was driven by demons. He had super strength. He couldn't be bound by anyone. He resisted every effort to help him. But when Jesus arrived, he came out of the tombs. And he ran to Jesus. That should give you some pause. The idea that a man that's controlled by demons would come and run to Jesus is pretty incredible, right? You'd think that if the guy was controlled by demons that he would run away from Jesus. Because I doubt that the demons really found the idea of being in the presence of holy God all that comfortable. See, something interesting happened here before Jesus even arrived on the scene. God had done something deep inside this man that he would even, like, such that he would even come out of the tombs while Jesus was around. He ran to Jesus because God did something in his heart beforehand. God gave him just that amount of will to be able to run to Jesus and fall at his feet. If you ever thought that maybe you had had come to Christ on your own, you're wrong. God had to do something first. He first loved us. And that's what happened with this man. Something quietly miraculous had happened in this man. And when the man was changed, the demons were taken out of him. It was simply a completion of the work that had already begun in him. In order to come to Jesus, God has to change your very nature. He has to change who you are. And if you're in Christ today, you have a reason to be thankful that God did that because he allowed you to come to Jesus. He changed you so that you could come. That's an amazing truth. And that should draw you into joy. Because it's not just that you chose God, it's that God chose you first in your wretched state. And he loved you enough to draw you. Of course, just like us, the, 
dealing with indwelling sin, that sin that's left that we continually fight every day. This man still needed to be freed from these demons that were within him. And it didn't really stop the demons from trying to resist just because the man had fallen at the feet of Jesus. But I'd like you to, to see something here. In, verses, in verse 7, starting there, it says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, and rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Notice this. The demons didn't fight. They bargained. They didn't run. They groveled. See, the demons understood their, their power relative to that which was standing before them. There was no fighting. It was just an attempt to bargain. They asked. Notice that. They asked. They didn't command. Before then, they, they would have been sort of top dog in the town, right? This guy couldn't be controlled. He, he was fully under their control, and no one else could trump that. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, they knew they were in the presence of greatness. Recently, I've been, uh, I've been watching the, the newer Godzilla and King Kong movies. Have any of you guys watched these? Yeah. Um, I got HBO Max for free with my cell phone plan, so here I am. Um, I, I, don't, I don't encourage you to spend any money on them. I don't think they're actually all that good, but like, they are entertaining. Okay, They're very entertaining. Um, and it's mostly from that visual standpoint, right? Like the size and scale of these creatures is so awesome that, that to watch them like throw tanks around like toys and push buildings over like blocks is just an amazing thing. I just love it. I don't know just how big they are and how crazy it is. And I, you know, some movies are, are compelling because they're relatable. You know, the movies, like they make you feel good, or you're like, oh, I can relate to that. I see, you know, I feel what they feel. These movies aren't like that, okay? <laughs> they know what they are. These movies are compelling. Actually, they're not compelling, they're entertaining for the opposite reason. It is incomprehensible what's happening in these movies in real life. Like, we can't relate to this. It's mind bending. In fact, the size of the monsters make the, the human stories seem kind of small and dumb in comparison. Have you noticed this? Like, they try to shoehorn these little narratives in, and it's like, but I just want to see Godzilla and King Kong, like, duking it out in the city. Like, that's what I'm here for, people. Like, I don't care about what the little people down there did. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You can admit it. It's okay. Like, these, these stories are just kind of footnotes. You know, because when Kong shows up on the scene, it becomes visually obvious that humanity isn't at the top of the food chain anymore, Right? It becomes obvious that when Godzilla comes in and sinks a whole Navy fleet after taking hit after hit from guns and missiles and everything else, that, that there's, you know, you just realize that there's no fighting back with this, 
right? It's never, like, there's never going to be anything in comparison. I say this today because in our modern American society, the idea of power and authority are limited. Like, the president is just another human being, and he can be voted out in four years. He's got checks and balances on him, so he, well, supposedly, so that he can't do crazy stuff. But that's why these monster movies are so entertaining for us these days, because their power isn't in check. There's nobody to, to, to rein them in. Now, look, this is a bad analogy that I'm getting ready to make, and I know it. So uh, I, I'm not saying that God is like King Kong or Godzilla, okay? I, I won't dare compare a holy and righteous God to some fictional giant creature. But the concept is something I want you to understand. These movies are entertaining because when the big guys show up, everybody knows their place, and it's way down there. In a much larger, more real, more commanding, and more awesome and fearsome way, that's what happened when Jesus arrived at Gerasa. The demons acted like they were top dog for a minute, but when Jesus showed up, they cowered in fear. They cowered in fear in, of the incarnation of the almighty God before them. And they begged Christ to just let them go to the pigs. He's like, don't torment us. Just let us go to the pigs. This was their last plea because they had already invoked to the name of God. They'd already said, by the name of God, don't torture us. They'd already tried to cajole Jesus into, into doing what they had asked. And, and now they were, they were begging. They were just saying, look, I, like, I'm sorry for using God's name, and I, I just, just don't, don't torture us. Let us go to the pigs. Let us go to the pigs. And then Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, gave them permission. As if they couldn't have done anything without his permission right then and there. That's incredible. And then they went into the herd of pigs and took 2,000 of the herd to a watery grave. He gave them permission. His authority was so far above, they had no choice. They were going to do whatever he told them to do, period. If you were paying attention last week, you, maybe you'll notice a theme here. Last week, we read the previous passage where Jesus calms the storm. Some commentators actually compared that passage to this one. They say that the storm was seen as a form of natural chaos. Demons were seen as a form of of spiritual chaos. And it was both are showing Jesus' absolute authority and power over those forms of chaos. Because look, both the storm and spiritual forces are higher than we are. They have more power than we are. To some extent, they are over us. We are subject to the spiritual powers of this world if we are outside of Christ. They are not subject to us. But both storms and demons know their place. They might have some power over mankind. We can't control storms. We can't stop demons on our own. But while they may have some power over us, everything, even evil, sits firmly under the authority of God. This is the mountaintop of the whole passage here. All right, everything leads up to and away from this. The sovereignty of God the Son. Standing in full control not only of the storm, but of every spiritual force. 
For me, the, the sovereignty of God is what inspires me to worship and to work and to love as God commanded. I mean, think of it. If God can command both storms and demons and they obey him at his word, he doesn't even have to do anything. He just speaks. Then what do we have to fear? Romans 8.31, second half of that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Only if God is sovereign can that passage make any sense at all. And Paul goes on, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that includes the spiritual realm, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's true only if God is completely sovereign over everything because if he is not sovereign, there's a chance that maybe something will happen that will separate me from the love of God. If he is not completely sovereign, even if he's perfectly merciful and righteous and holy, even if all of those things are true, but he isn't absolutely sovereign, then there are some things over which he has no power, and that has to worry you a little bit. But God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, even over history itself. And if that's true, and it is true, then I can rest assured that God will absolutely do all that he promised to do, no matter what. I can obey him over and against the temptations of this world, even against the demonic forces and Satan himself, because the one I serve is more powerful. The sovereignty of God is key to everything we believe. Demons might be powerful. Satan might go around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour, but God stands in sovereign authority over and power over everything, absolutely everything. Yes, Satan's and, and, Satan and demons are real and they're powerful and spiritual warfare is real. You need to rebuke them if necessary. But God... That's my favorite two words in all of scripture, but God, he is your strength and shield. He is your solid rock, the firm foundation, the cornerstone. We have a higher authority, higher power. And so when you rebuke Satan's forces in Jesus' name, they must flee. See, they know they're defeated and perishing. Your heavenly father has pronounced the sentence already and they will be burned up on the last day. They know where they're going because we have a sovereign God who is all powerful. In light of that, you individually, each of you can live in peace, security, obedience, and joy if you're in Christ. Whew, what a big load off. Man, Breathe it in. Your God is greater than absolutely anything on this earth, not on this earth, anywhere in the universe, whatever it is in all of creation. And because he is greater, you can rest assured in Christ who paid the price for all of your sins and you can rest in the power of the Holy Spirit who fills you. You need not fear anything if you are in Christ. I want us to see the transformation that comes along with this. Verses 14 through 17 say, The herdsmen fled and told it to, in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that happened. 
And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had, it described to them what had happened, and uh, I, sorry, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. <laughs> that formerly demon-possessed man was changed inside and out. This is the, a great analogy, again, of the righteousness of Christ, which he clothes us in. In his former state, he was a slave to Satan. In his new state, free at last. Look, I'm sure that the man still had cuts and scars. And maybe he didn't smell too great. But man, what a difference. Clothed and in his right mind. Not screaming at the top of his lungs. Not uncontrollable. The man who was uncontrollable and breaking chains and screaming, cutting himself, he was sitting peacefully where Jesus was. Not in the tombs anymore, but in the company of Jesus. And yet, like the disciples after the storm, the people of the town, they were afraid. They'd seen what happened. I mean, I can only imagine that this was like kind of the, the magnus fear that Pastor Brandon spoke about last, last week. A great fear. The full power of God over evil was on display, and the people's response was, what is happening here? It's like incomprehensible, the level of power that was on display. Look, fear is actually the right response for all people in light of the holiness and power of God. Whether sinner or saint, prostitute or prophet, no one stands in the presence of Almighty God. This is the faintest glimpse of God's, the, the effects of God's glory caused Moses' face to glow. Any direct exposure to God's holiness would burn us all to ash. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For those who don't trust in Christ, man, the, the forgiveness, uh, for the forgiveness of their sins, then it, it is, the, the sort of fear I'm talking about should be sheer terror. That's real. But you might think, well, I'm in Christ, and it's, it, that's okay. I don't have to be fearful of God. On one hand, I, I completely agree with you. On the other hand, I would say, yes, you're not subject to his vengeance. You don't have to fear his wrath. You're saved. You're part of his family. He's not going to pour out his wrath on you. He already poured out his wrath for you on Christ. But you should still fear God. It's a reverent fear. It's a respectful fear. When you come before God in prayer and worship, Maybe it's time to stop treating him like he's your buddy. You're talking to the holy God of the universe. Yes, you are a friend of God. But that doesn't mean the same thing as I'm a friend of Dana or I'm a friend of Dale. It's not the same thing. We're not talking equals. We're talking friends to someone who is far greater than us. Yes, Scripture says 
that God is your heavenly father, but as your heavenly father, he commands respect. But for the people of Garasa, man, I, I think that they probably felt the terror kind of fear as they looked on what had happened. And so they asked Jesus to leave. They were like, look, we can't deal with this. We don't know what's happening. But, like, could you just not? And go, please. I mean, but the man who had been changed, the one who had been saved, I have no doubt that this man felt fear. He saw what had happened too, but it was reverence, not terror. And he wanted to go with the one who had saved him. In the 18th verse of our passage of this morning, it says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, that is Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Man, it's interesting this word begged. It's the same Greek word used to describe the demons asking Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And it's the same word that is used for the people begging him to leave their, their area. This man didn't want Jesus to go away. He wanted to go with him. He said, can, can you take me with you? Isn't it strange that Jesus declines? He says, no. You're not, you're not coming with me. Not in the way that you expect to. It says, and he did not permit him. What did he say instead? He said, instead, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, this man wanted to do something great for Jesus. He wanted to reach the highest things. He said, I'm willing to let everything go and I'll come with you, Jesus. It's a wonderful desire. But the man wanted to do something great. But Jesus called him to do something ordinary. I mean, going with Jesus would have been a big shift. He would have traveled and preached the gospel. He would have helped Jesus in his journey. Maybe he would have been the 13th apostle. Maybe he would have been one of the 70 that Jesus sent out to do ministry later. He was happy to abandon everything and go with Jesus wherever he went. But often, following Jesus doesn't mean achieving greatness. It means sowing the seed of the gospel into the ground that God has given us in our everyday lives. Sometimes following Jesus doesn't mean doing the great and easy thing. It means doing the ordinary and hard thing. Because this man had to go back home. He had to go to the place where everybody knew him as the garrison demoniac. He had to do the hard work. Going with Jesus would have been simple. He would have left it all behind. But Jesus had different plans for him. and Perhaps he has different plans for us. Maybe it's not about greatness. Maybe it's not about numbers. Maybe it's not about all those great things that you might desire. Maybe it's about the ordinary things. 
because this church was planted to do the ordinary work of ministry and providing the ordinary means of grace to ordinary people who need an extraordinary Savior. That's who we are. That's who I hope that you are. I hope that we'll grow in that. So today, consider it. What does it mean to do the hard thing? Matthew seven fourteen says, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Maybe it's time for us to go back home to do the hard thing and to glorify God in the ordinary, mundane things of everyday life. Sharing all that God has done for us, how the Lord has delivered us and how he has had mercy on us. And perhaps then, perhaps then this world will look upon what we do and they will marvel at the glory of God. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.